Welcome to Codex Rex, the video game history podcast. My name is Dux, I am your host. And I am your co-host, Tyler. Since you're the better one explaining what this podcast is, could you please do that? <laughs> <laughs> Not a problem. Codex Rex is a video game history podcast where each episode we examine something about video game history. It could be something cultural. It could be a specific game series and how it's made. It could be an influential person. It could even be just a concept that is like a thread throughout a lot of video games. Yeah. And uh, basically one of us does research on a specific topic and the other person goes in without any knowledge of what we're about to talk and about. And shuts the fuck up and listens. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Sit down and <laughs> shut up right now. These are fucking video games and they are very important. But Tyler, it is the Christmas season. So we, we need to be a bit nicer to each other and to everybody around us because um, it is the time of Slanish and the... <laughs> oh, wait, no. Uh, it's the time of Christ. I, I, conf I confused something. <laughs> well, you know, a Slanesh, the god of excess, sounds like a pretty suitable pretty suitable uh, chaos god to fit into such a situation. <laughs> how, how more. You... Give more. How have you been doing in these, in these greedy times? Oh, well, you know, um, I kind of hate the holidays. I'm kind of curmudgeonly. And Andrea is uh, trying to sort of drag me across the festive finish line, we'll call it, to do things like decorate a tree and, you know, send out cards. While Tal like Tyler tells me this, there's a Christmas tree in the background. <laughs> and I, I know with 100% certainty that he, for the last few days he has been thinking about doing a Christmas stream tomorrow. And <laughs> it's so... Uh, it is. You, you're, you're still leaning into it, though. <laughs> oh, of course. Yeah, it's called... We call it Uncle Giveaway's Horrible Holiday Special, and it is probably my favorite thing that I do on the stream. So. Nice. Awesome. I'm looking forward to it. Me too. Um, it, it will have happened when this um, episode airs. Yeah, but will. it will happen uh, every year. I hope. I hope so too. I always leave the vod up though, if you ever want to see what terror that is. So, what have you been playing these days, man? I'm What's playing. Um, I'm playing something that we have to do an episode about at some point. I'm playing Death Stranding by oh, Kojima, yeah. and it's a trip. But I love it. Funny enough, I'm also playing Death Stranding because we all influence each other around here. Yes. And uh, I love how we're all sort of roughly at the same spot in the game. Like, not really. Like, you guys are a bit further ahead of me. But, like, the fact that, like, we're all sort of there, you know, traipsing across the wasteland together and we have no idea what's fucking going on is, like, it's very exciting to me. So I think there's, like, four or five of us right now who are all playing it. It's, it's insane. Oh, man. What a good game, though. Yeah, really awesome. It's a piece of art. Especially really the is. monster energy drink part. <laughs> <laughs> Unleash the beast, bro! Okay. So if one would like to contact us or talk to us or hang out with us, how would one do that? Well, the easiest way to get a hold of me is to either pop into my Twitch stream, which is, I'm just Vegan Tyler on Twitch, or you could pop into the Discord, which you can find a link to that on my, on my Twitch page, or you could send me an email at vegan tyler ttv at gmail.com so if you ever have any suggestions for the podcast or you just want to send me hate mail or something i guess uh yeah. that would be the place to do it please don't send me hate mail yeah hate mail goes to tyler once. 
Yeah, you, you did get an email from whom? I got an email once and I was really excited. Was it, and it was it like, hate mail? <laughs> no, it was an email. I was like, oh, wow, I got an email. And it was like, hey, I just made this tool that lets small podcasters aggregate all of their data, but it costs you a subscription fee a month. And I just wanted to tell you about it. And I was it, was, like, it was spam. Oh. <laughs> it was spam. It was spam masquerading as a, as a nice email from someone. So. At least they didn't sell you Viagra, so it's okay. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, that's how you find me. How would someone yeah. find you, Docs? Uh, they don't. I don't talk to people. Okay, that's or you, fair. Or you, or you go into Tyler's Discord and, and you just say my name three times and I show up. <laughs> you just burrow out of whatever hole you've crawled into. Yes. So. Okay, do you want to start? Yeah. What are we going to talk about today, man? Okay. So today we go way back. And it's it's only kind of a Christmas theme, but only because it starts at Christmas. And we start in 1926. Okay. Calvin Coolidge is president. Al Capone just became the boss of the Chicago Mafia. And the prohibition is in full effect. It's the 23rd of December. Only one day until Christmas. And a boy is born in Pipestone, Minnesota. His name is Benjamin Gurley. He will be shot and killed in the middle of this episode. Okay. But this is not a true crime podcast. So I'm going <laughs> to say this right away. And I will not dwell on his death. And we will not get into it. And we will not discuss how it happened and who did it and stuff like that. But it, it, it happens. And I pondered a while, how do I put this into this? I, I was like, this is not a true crime podcast. I'm just going to say it right away. He will be shot. That was terrible. But this is not <laughs> what this episode is about. I'm sorry to laugh at a man's death. I'm just like, okay. And the important thing is about why he was shot is because if he wouldn't have been shot, he would have achieved much more. Because what he will do okay. in this episode will change you might say change the world or at least change video game culture and video game history. So when he was 15 years old, just to get more of the time frame, the US joined the war against Germany and the fighting would be over before he turned 19. And I wasn't sure if he joined, if he ever was drafted, but mm. I kind of looked up the, the drafting laws in the USA and apparently, according to the Universal Military Training Act of 1951, he was required to to join the military service so he must ah. he must have so i can i can shed a little bit of light on this so basically we have something called the selective service act although i might have been called something back in the day anyway regardless we had draft laws and pretty much unless you had a good excuse like a legit good excuse just about everyone of fighting age got drafted for world war ii now if you were like in college or you had a medical disability or, you know, some other compelling reason, then you didn't have to go. Uh, funny enough, they actually still make a sign up, just just males uh, sign up for the draft, but they haven't used it back since Vietnam. So I actually wasn't able to do that. Like I had this whole discussion with like one of my teachers back in high school about the whole process and such. And basically you can't even get like federal loans 
uh, for to go to college if you don't sign up for it. So it's like they make you. But regardless, back to the original topic, it's very likely he probably got drafted because that's almost... That's what I thought as well. But I just yeah. couldn't find anything on it. Like, I think we run into this quite often that some people just don't have their stuff all out in the public. So you just don't know yep. about that. He, he kind of disappears for a while and he resurfaces in the 50s as an engineer, okay. as an engineer at MIT. And he works with two other engineers called Ken Olson and Harlan Anderson. Okay. They are founders of the so-called Digital Equipment Corporation, the DEC. And okay. let's talk about those two for a bit, about Olson and Anderson, because their story is pretty neat. Both of them earned themselves master's degrees in electrical engineering. Olson had been repairing radios in his dad's garage from when he was a young boy. And Anderson actually was a physics major that got into computer science when he talked to a co colleague from the University of Illinois about how they were building the Iliac One, which, without going into too much detail, was the first computer owned by a public education institution. And if we talk, if we talk about computers, we mean house-sized, vacuum-tube-filled monsters. Oh, <laughs> just, yeah. Just imagine this beast that consists of this these gigantous um, glass tubes that you would only today find in hi-fi installations, and it weighed five tons, and it ate punch cards for instructions. You couldn't, like, there was no other way to program it. <laughs> Um, yep. And he, he learned about that, and that's how he got into electrical engineering. Anderson. Olson was the boss of Anderson and Gurley, of both of them, at the MIT Lincoln Laboratory, which is a federally funded R&D center concerned with national security. Lincoln Laboratory operates to this day, and the three engineers were part of the so-called Project Whirlwind. And okay. this project focused on calculating computational solutions to intercepting air threats, aerial strikes, by being able sure. to quickly extrapolate a defensive response using data collected by radar stations. So they built computers to calculate that really quickly. The computers they created during the time there are known as the TX-0 and the TX-2. These machines could describe as a landmark in computer science because They brand the transition from computers that use vacuum tubes to computers that use transistors. Oh, shit. Okay, that would be a pretty big landmark. Yeah, because transistors is what we use until um, today, just in smaller versions. Mm -hmm. Like the Iliac one that um, inspired Anderson, that was a vacuum tube computer. And the TX0 and TX2, that were the first transistor computers. So yeah, they, um, they introduced the use of transistors com in computing, and this technology stays prevalent until today. So these guys were the pioneers of transistor computing, or they learned from the pioneers and then were the first ones to build the machines. Having a lot of experience with this kind of technology, Anderson and Olson left this ivory tower of military funding in 1957 and tried to make it on their own. They had the ambition and the skill, but they lacked money. And in one interview, Anderson explains how they believed that they could just walk into a bank without money, pitch their idea, and work out with stacks of cash. Like, yeah, you know. <laughs> they were just like, yeah, we, we are geniuses. We can do this. We work for the military. We know things nobody else knows. They're just going to shower us in cash. Um, according... <laughs> I just like you could just like stretch that that idea so far, right? Like, yeah, any anything we fucking propose, they're gonna give us money for because we're fucking brilliant. All right, so uh, I'm thinking 
uh, rocket-powered unicorn toy car for little boys and little girls. Okay, you know it's the fifties. <laughs> we're trying to we're trying to change something, and uh, you know you can actually attach it to the top of your house, and it works as a fucking satellite dish. I like, yeah, I'm, everybody's gonna want one. I'm not good with American accents, but that's a Jersey one, right? <laughs> <laughs> Dude, I don't fucking know. <laughs> Probably. Um, Maybe, I don't know. I'm sorry to anybody who's in Jersey who potentially could be offended. <laughs> They're not guilty. According to him, they they get rejected a lot. And <laughs> Good. They, um, at some point, they just decided, we got to sit down in the library and, and just learn about how to apply to funding for funding. Like, how do we apply for any kind of funding from a bank? I just feel like this is the point in the movie, right? Like, if this is the movie, the cinematic movie that I'm <laughs> yes. visualizing, right? This is the montage of them being like, we're the fucking best. We're geniuses. We're going to get so much money. And then it's just like a montage of, like, people stamping no on a piece of paper. <laughs> yes. And then they have this drunk conversation in the bar. And they're like, dude, we've got to do something about this. We've got to figure out how to do this. And then there's a training montage where they sit down in the <laughs> library and they just learn about uh-huh. they learn about accounting and money. And right? Like one of them's like falling asleep and he like shoves his buddy to wake up and he starts scribbling furiously. Yeah. Right? One of them starts screaming, I've got it! And the librarian looks over and she gives him a shh. Right, yeah. like, oh yeah, this is a total '80s movie for yeah. sure. Right there, in, an '80s movie in the '50s. Yeah, um, they, <laughs> they, they stitched an '80s movie about the '50s. Yes, so they they did stitch together at some point. They figured out how to stitch together some financial statements, uh, profit and cash flow, and balance projections, and they applied for so-called venture capital at the American Research and Development, and they got their funding. If you don't know what venture capital is, it's just like. You say you have this business idea and some kind of um, financing group gives you a huge chunk of money with a great amount of risk. And the only thing that they get back is they they own part of your company. Right. The first two years in their company, the DEC, they basically only designed modules that could be assembled into more complicated circuitries. And because they knew that they had to make quick returns to satisfy their investors. And... In the first year, they made $94,000 of revenue, which is about $1 million today. Wow. But they only created modules for these truck-sized computers that could only be operated by borderline geniuses with millions of dollars of funding. And that wasn't what they actually wanted to do. They wanted to open up the use of computers to a broader audience. And... The idea was like, what if they could build a machine that was designed not just to be effective, but also user-friendly in a way? Because computers, like if you wanted to to use a computer, you had to understand every inch of it. And they figured that, mm-hmm. that it's, that's not the way for the future of computing because there were so many applications you could use computing in that it wasn't used yet. So here's a quote by Ken Olson, the, the founder. We had a dream of interactive computing. Okay. Normal computing was considered big, expensive, awesome, beyond ordinary people. Interactive computing was exciting and fun and people could interact directly with the computer. And this is kind of where Benjamin Gurdy comes in. Since he also worked at Project okay. Whirlwind, for the military. He was familiar with the technology 
these guys were using. And apparently Gurdy was known to be like a brilliant designer and they wanted to make use of his expertise to fuse all of their modules into their dream computer, the machine that would do their bidding. So the DEC at this time already consisted of five people. Ben was given leadership over the creation of this new machine, which would be called the Programmed Data Processor 1, or in short, the PDP-1. And as I said, he was supposed to use the products they already, they already created, all these modules that they usually just sold to other people that already had computers, and they could build them into them. But he was supposed to use all these modules, fuse them together into their machine, and make their computer out of that. Okay. So computers at this time, right? Giant, monstrous, room-sized insanity that you have to use punch cards and stuff. And so... If, if what you're saying is correct, they just made modules and now they're basically trying to make the first like home yeah. PC. Is that what you're saying? Not necessarily like a home PC, but like something that's more like... They try to make something that's smaller, especially affordable. Mm -hmm. Like how much do you think a computer costs at the time? Oh, so like from what I know about the, the big ones, they were like millions of dollars. The Iliac one cost $3 million to build. Yeah, and you usually only saw them at least from what I understand, don't call me on this, at like either military institutions like you were talking about or like academic yeah. institutions. And that, that was only the, the cost to buy it. Um, the amounts of electricity they ate was insane uh -huh. because vacuum tubes ate up um, a, a bunch of it. And also they were super unreliable. Vacuum tubes would break all the time that you would have to figure out which one broke. You would have to look at all of them, touch them, see if they're still warm and stuff like that and replace them. And they wanted to make a machine that is more reliable, cheaper, and maybe even smaller. So yeah, they had these all these kinds of modules that were transistor-based and they told Ben, Ben, fuse these together, make us our machine. And several sources state that even though he was told to only use the modules that existed, that he basically built half the machine from scratch because he was like, I can't use this. I'm just going to do, do it. My, I'm just going to fuck it. I'm going to do it myself. <laughs> he, was, he, was, he, he couldn't right. use the stuff that existed. And so he started the design of the prototype in the summer of 1959. And he was done three months later. Okay. Zip snap. He built the entire thing. The prototype wow. was ready. And they, he, he kind of put out a paper on it. Okay. And it caused quite the steer and interest by the scientific community around the US, especially because they were able to produce a transistor-based machine. And um, what you must know about transistors, that they were actually, to, to buy a transistor is 10 times more expensive to buy a vacuum tube. So usually building transistor computers would be more expensive than building a vacuum tube computer. But they were able to build a transistor machine okay. that was cheaper than a vacuum tube machine, but had similar computing power. I mean, that's just, just lowering the price of such a thing. Is, Absolutely. Is and what they also itself. did, like what the people also knew, this thing was basically the successor of confidential machines. Because people knew about the TX0 and the TX2, but the TX0 and TX2 were confidential. These were military machines. Nobody could use them. And this oh, was a, this this was a privately owned yeah. prototype that could be sold to anyone. And people were like amazed to finally look into the technology, to the assembly of it, because these were the three these were three of the people that built these these confidential, these secret prototypes that um have not been revealed for a long time or could only be viewed by people that had certain permissions. Yeah, I hadn't even thought about that when you were talking about them working for the military. I was like 
oh, okay, so they have all this knowledge of tech. It hadn't even occurred to me that that tech would be confidential. Yeah. You know, actually, interestingly, um, a lot of modern day tech, <clears throat> not all, but like a modern, a lot of the, the, the tech that built like the foundation for the yeah. crazy technological society we have now was funded by the military. One of the biggest reasons for that is that military has huge amounts of money yeah it turns out if you uh turns out if you want to shoot other people uh you know you can make a lot of money off of it the pdp won <laughs> it, <laughs> yeah, tell me about this computer. it tell made them eight hundred thousand dollars of profit in back then money that's a shit ton of money which is 10 times the money today like it's that's eight million dollars they, they made that amount of money in the fiscal year of 1962 and they did put a lot of effort into selling their machine because that was the idea we now we have a computer that is cheaper it only costs like usually a computer would cost like five million dollars six million dollars this dot this machine sold for fantastic how much do you think how much did it cost if you wanted to buy it oh, you said it was way cheaper it was, it's right? way cheaper than a usual piece than a normal computer at the time. Uh, let's say five hundred thousand dollars or less it was cheaper. Really? Yeah. $100,000? $100,020. Okay. 100000 was my first guess, but I was like, that's got to be too low. Which still would be a million dollars a day. Yeah, that's still crazy. Yeah. But... Um, well, for what it was, though, it like, was that's, that's, a, that's, a, that's a bargain. 10 times to 50 times cheaper than any computer you would know. For, finally, for some companies, it would become realistic to afford a machine like that. Because mm -hmm. if you know how fast a machine can calculate things you know how much money it saves you. Yeah. And they started to to kind of put effort into selling it to people that were not familiar with computers. For example, to advertise the portability of the PDP-1, they put it on in this tiny little portable house and that kind of kind of looked like a chunky tent and they drove it okay. all around the country. And they were like, look, we built a computer that fits into a house that is significantly smaller than the other houses or those other computers fit into. <laughs> Uh, I stocked my tiny home with a computer. <laughs> Just one. Yes. So I have a question. Yes. I don't know if you know, would know the answer to this. So like, what were they saying the applications of this would be? Like, okay, so they want to get to like a broader mass market, right? So like, let's just pretend that they're advertising to like everybody. What 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 are what are the hallmarks of this thing? What can it do that is just so great that I would need to cough up a million dollars to get one? The interesting thing is, I had a lot of correspondence between them where they were fighting about it. They were they had okay. they had huge discussions about what the users and the private sector could be. Um, like um, Ken Olson was convinced that they should sell it to communication with each other, like automatic telephone management or connection management, and that they could kind of modulate their PDP-1 in such a way that it would automating of connecting people that wanted to call each other, because that was still done by hand, right? By telephone okay. operators. Yeah. And others had other hmm. ideas, but they were still actively discussing it all the time because it wasn't that wasn't really explored yet how computers could be used in the private sector. Others would say it has to be used in the bank sector. It has to be used financially because we can we can do estimations much easier. We can just program in the um, um, mathematical equations and it spits things out in seconds that humans take weeks for. So right. yeah, they just had debates about that. Yeah, I was just curious because like <clears throat> today, it's it's obvious what the practical applications of computers are. I mean, I'm talking to you from the United States while you're yeah. in Germany and we're recording a podcast and I can see your face in real time and like that's crazy shit. But I'm I'm thinking like back then, 
how do you market that? Right. And so it's interesting to me, like, I guess from what you're saying is, is like, they, they weren't totally sure how to, how to do it. But like, you know, if you just say this is a banking tool, right. Um, I wonder if it would have taken off in the same way. They were trying to figure it out themselves. And let's hear an example yeah. of what they did, for example, because they, they okay. got it to, to a certain place. Um, like they drove it around in this tiny house, as I told you, mm-hmm. and I found this letter written to them by the vice president of the Parachute Club of America. Uh, and it was sent... What is that? <laughs> What's the Parachute Club of America? What the fuck is the Parachute Club? People that like to jump out of planes, I guess. <laughs> and okay. it was sent to Harlan Anderson to thank them for being able to use the PDP-1 to instantly calculate the scores of the skydivers because they did they did like point jumping where you would have to hit, mm. a, hit an aim and they had like complicated scoring system and with the machine they could calculate it faster so that's how they try to show people look the machine it does your job it makes things easier and much cooler and like the thing even includes the the letter includes a picture of the little house it's like on, on kind of a meadow it's, it, it looks like a tent and within the tent you can see the pdp1 it's like one tower next to the tower is a desk and on the desk you have a little you have a screen, a little like a little TV right. with a typewriter next to it. Huh. And it was surrounded by people that were just staring at the computer, trying to figure out what was going on. <laughs> wow, look at it go! It says 12, 17, 5. How do we check this? I don't know. And just It's just telling me the numbers. <laughs> That's number wang. <laughs> That's number wang, everybody. <laughs> By the way, if you guys have no idea what that is, go look up the skit uh, from That Mitchell and Webb. It's called Number Wang. Yeah, and it. it's a nonsensical game show. It will make your day. So, that's Wanganum. And let's rotate the board. So even though they, they went on these advertisement sprees to sell their machine, they must have kind of undersold it in terms of how they described its abilities. Because there's a letter from a nuclear scientist at MIT to Ben Gurley, which is basically them saying how they can't believe how cool this machine is. They make clear how it's far more reliable than advertised and how the technical support which they received was extremely helpful, like whenever they called them and any help they got was super nice and like informed. Hmm. And I, I just quote the last sentence because it really sounds like a nuclear scientist that never gives up compliments trying to be nice about something that you okay. experienced. I am not in the habit of writing testimonial letters, but I <laughs> believe that so outstanding a performance on your part should not go without written comment. <laughs> <laughs> Best regards. <laughs> it's some kind of German name. Of course, all the Germans are in the nuclear science science department. Of course, yeah. I mean, well, of course. <laughs> so for those of you who don't know, uh, after the war... Uh, World War II, the United States said, hey, all you German scientists who might be um, liking to escape persecution, why don't you come work for us and help us to develop a bunch of shit? And uh, many of them took that opportunity. Yeah, that um, helped American science a lot. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. One of the grandest... (laughs) (laughs) Your face... Yeah, it's okay. You, yeah, you don't have to be prosecuted if you're helpful, right? That's that's a yeah, that's a course. that's a yeah. morally solid standpoint. Yeah, once you have utility, you know why? I mean, why throw out perfectly good German scientists? It doesn't matter what you did before. 
<laughs> so one of the grandest and <laughs> probably most exciting things about the PDP one. The most exciting thing about this was that it had a display, a, a cathode ray display. And you must imagine <laughs> you must imagine this. Sorry, I just totally have a case of the giggles here. <laughs> <laughs> well, now your German scientist is spoiled. You're gonna have to throw him out. <laughs> nah, nah. <laughs> He's still got some use. What's that? Um, <laughs> the Tom Lehrer quote: "I make rockets go up, um, not where they come down. That's not my department," says Werner von Braun. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. Yeah. Okay, and it's time to serious the fuck up. Yes, let's do it. Okay, one of the coolest things that people really loved about the PDP-1 was that it had a display. And it had like one of those, I mean, young kids today don't know these kind of displays, but when I guess when we were young, they were still kind of prevalent. And this mm-hmm. just these these big tubes, um, these glass tubes, and these are called cathode ray displays. And it's basically a glass tube that look, it looks like an OTV set. And in the simplest of terms, it basically sends a stream of electrons through the tube towards the front and they get bent by magnets that's why you could use like you could put a magnet to one to these old tvs and they would completely distort the the picture because because it was it would fuck with the technology do you still have any of those old tvs Uh, i ask for a specific reason i haven't seen one of them in a while yeah so i asked because um i keep an old crtv in my mother's attic which is on a different coast at this point um because it's really hard to play the original hardware of certain um video game consoles on newer tvs because there is a delay and so a lot of um, people who are into retro stuff will keep some of these old TVs so that they can play the original hardware without input delays. Oh, that's pretty interesting. Yeah. Yeah, I think I once heard that like pro gamers and certain esports that they only use these kinds of displays because of that, because that there because there's no delay at all, and hmm. they fantasize about that their Counter Strike kill streak gets better if they have a 0.004 second time ahead of the enemy to shoot them. I don't know. How would you bring that to a tournament? (laughs) I can only play on a specific controller if I'm using my grandma's CRTV. Uh, I don't know. If you're sweaty enough, you'll you'll, you'll get it done. (laughs) (laughs) Maximum sweat. (laughs) Okay, so these things, they were invented in 1897 by a German dude, a physicist called Ferdinand Braun. And okay. there's a fun fact about it because he invented them and a contemporary of him, um, of Braun, he was called Max Stiegmann. Um, he proposed to use these cathode ray tubes to display information, to display things, to, to use them as displays. And Braun very openly stated that that's bullshit and that you, that you shouldn't <laughs> do that. And that's not how his technology will be used. But Stiegmann didn't care and did it anyway. And he invented the first ever TV that was used really? um, for a long time, the Nipkov disc. And yeah, screw you, Ferdinand Brown, for not yeah. for not believing in your own technology. Take that, Ferdinand Brown. Mm. <laughs> yeah, we fucking showed you. you know, write him a strongly worded letter. Yeah, and this technology would be used in further iterations for um, the next 90 years. Yeah. Like in the 90s, it started to get replaced by 
the screens we use today. Back to the PDP-1. Having a device to receive instant output instead of having to read endless scripting printouts, because usually your output from a computer would be a printout that would be coded, so you would have to decode it again. And just having just having a screen that would give you your information instantly or after the calculations were done was super helpful for people. And also they, they wouldn't feel as overwhelmed because I think computers at the time felt even more overwhelming than computers can feel today, even though they still do. And and this must have driven sales a lot because that was a good way to visualize the use of the PDP-1 to people that were not computer scientists. The DEC ran into one problem though. The DEC, the company that produced mm-hmm. the PDP-1. Ken Olson, he was kind of a free thinker. He was the boss of the company. And he was a true academic that must have despised his work at the military. He must have hated the hierarchy, the uh-huh. introduction of uh, like this this corporate structure that they were forced upon. And um, that's why he left and found his own company because he wanted to be free and he wanted to do whatever he wants to. But his, his company now, the DEC, they started growing. But he refused to put in any kind of hierarchy or any kind of organization or mm. or kind of set goals that they would achieve together. So everybody did whatever they wanted. And that caused them to not, after the PDP-1, to not achieve goals anymore. They kind of tried to produce a successor, the PDP-2, the, the PDP-3. Both of them failed to technological problems. They never got published. And that's also when Ben Gurley left the company. Interesting. You know, this reminds me of, uh, we. I don't know if we talked about this in episode four, but with Valve, where, oh no, it was episode three, sorry, mm-hmm. uh, with, with Portal, we, the Portal episode oh, yeah. we did. Uh, Valve has a very non-hierarchical, like, internal structure, and that's often pointed to as one of the reasons why they haven't finished some of their projects. <laughs> Half-Life 3. <clears throat> but, um you know, I often wonder how useful that is. You know, some of the people that we've seen in different different episodes have trouble with this hierarchy. Like Yasuhiro Wada in the last one hated the whole hierarchy of yeah. video game making, right? But like, does it get results? I think that's, you know, up to question. Anderson and Olsen, they had to, like that of falling out where Anderson was convinced that they had to introduce a structure. And, and he kind of snitched on Olsen because they had like the, they were being they were being financed by other people, and mm-hmm. and Anderson, even though he was technically underneath Olson, he went past Olson to the people that were financing them and told them, Olson isn't doing shit. He's not organizing anything. We're not getting anything done because Olson refuses to be the boss of this company. And right. Olson got pissed and threw Anderson out. And hmm. o- Olson would leave the company until 1990 for a very okay. long time. Wow. And Anderson went somewhere else. Huh. But yeah, it didn't come down to them not not making any money. They were kind of losing profit. They were growing too fast and couldn't keep up. But it came down to the leading engineers not agreeing on how to do it and then, then breaking it apart. But Ben Gurley, he decided, I'm not going to do this. I'm going to go somewhere else. He left the company in 1963 when he was 36 years old. And he joined a new company, but never started there. He got shot at the dinner table by an old colleague of his um, from the DEC. Yeah. Wow. At first, I was like, will I get into this? Will I find out what happened? I tried to kind of sort of, it, it's unclear. There's like a book about it from a friend of Ben Gurley who wrote about what happened. But it's, it's not really known what happened. The court, the perpetrator was thrown into prison. There's different theories going around. 
but it's, hmm. it was very tragic. He was like front, shot in front of his children. Wow. Yeah, really, Oof. really crazy. Well, so yeah, but now um, we're kind of stuck here, right? Because we didn't really reach any any video game related thing. It's just a computer, right? Um, yeah. But we do have the PDP one, and let's introduce a new plotline here. All right. One thing you must know about the DEC, the company, is that they were kind of a meeting ground for all the nerds at MIT. So if you were on campus or you went to the mill, the mill is what they called their office because it was an old mill. Okay. If you didn't go to campus, you went to the to the mill and hung out there with the engineers and you you would kind of talk to them about what they were doing, the, look at the circuits, look at the prototypes of the PDP-1 and the other things they were building. And it was kind of a community, community place because Ken Olsen, as we said, he hated the confidentiality of the Lincoln Labs and he hated the structure and these in-group, out-group thing and the hierarchy. So everybody was part of it. It was a whole academic experience where people could learn from each other, kind of esoteric in a computer science nerdy way. Right, right. So yeah, anybody could come and go. It was basically, it was nerd heaven. And <laughs> one of those dudes that liked to come by was someone called Stephen Russell. Okay. And for some reason he's called, he's nicknamed Slug. So, okay. so from now on, I, I can't. I, I have to call him Slug from now on. It's just gonna. Hang. Why do you guys call me Slug? Well, because you're a uh, sticky, and uh, we like to metaphorically step on you sometimes. He doesn't look like a Slug though. I looked at him. Looks like a handsome. What? Is, I don't know. Strange fucking name. So, all the students and university employees knew about the PDP one, and they hung out with the actual designers of the machine all the time. So once MIT bought a PDP-1, they actually knew how to operate it because they were hanging out with the designers all the time. Oh, I think I figured it out. I know what we're talking about. What is it? Metal Slug. Yep, it's a game about him. Metal Slug. <laughs> Metal Slug is a game about that dude. <laughs> yes. Yeah, it's just him. That's just, he's like a self-insert. Yeah, it's, it's going to be... He, he programmed Metal Slug on the PDP-1. <laughs> um, this is the man I wish I could be. <laughs> yeah, uh, that's not it. Really close. Stuff. Okay. Yeah. Well, you know, you, you miss 100% of the shots it's, you don't take. Metal Slug is also a computer game. So good job. Yeah. <laughs> I knew I was like somewhere in the ballpark. Like maybe I was like yeah. up in the stands, like licking dirt off the ground, but I was in there. <laughs> that, right. Someone someone saw you. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so Slug and a bunch of other people that either worked, studied, or just hung out at MIT, they got access to the PDP one. Okay. via um, a professor called Jack Dennis. Um, like the professors that had access to the machines and they could decide who could use them. And Jack Dennis, he was like, he, he made a deal with them. They, he was like, you can do with this machine whatever you want to, but in the end of the day, I want software that can be run on okay. this. So I will not be here. You can do whatever you want. Just give me something that makes me, I don't know, a rich man or something. He wanted software. That's what he wanted. Um, right, right. <laughs> what, what a thing to say. I don't care what you fucking do with this multi-million dollar computer as long as I can personally profit off of it. Yeah, definitely. I think that's the professor life, right? Yeah, actually, interestingly enough, I'm pretty sure I don't own any of the uh, things I produce while I'm at the university. I'm pretty sure they own all of the legal rights to all of the work that I did there, even though they don't really do anything to help me produce it i mean other than the people on my you know my committee right yeah but like it's not like the university administrators are coming in and they're like hey tyler 
yeah, we were looking at your uh, we were looking at your paper there, and we thought you should change this to that. Yeah, um, I mean, they kind of better. put in the ex- existential dread, right? Without that, it wouldn't feel the same. Of course, yes. You know, if I did not constantly wake up in a in a in a cold sweat thinking about the massive amount of work <laughs> that I have to do for my dissertation, I really don't think that it would be the same experience. I get that. Yeah. So uh, that's why I pay them for that experience. It's very oh nice. yeah, right. That's a it's a yeah. kind of a interactive experience. Okay, actually, real real quick, fucking side detour. Uh, Andrew and I were talking about things that happened in our lives that we thought were like the most influential and important, and I was actually talking about how going to grad school was like probably the best thing I ever did for myself. So like, even though I talk about how scary and horrifying dissertations are, cause they are, uh, it was still really important. So don't let my shenanigans discourage you from pursuing higher education. All right. Yeah. So yeah, I, I'm kind of a hundred percent sure that this deal that they made kind of involved like a Peter Molyneux-esque conversation Filled, okay. filled with kind of like half truth and empty promises, <laughs> like so. You guys can you I'm, I'm you you guys worked with the DEC people, right? You know how to use this machine, and they're all like sitting in front of his office, like, uh, "Are you asking this us because you want to give us access to the PDP one?" And he's like, "I mean, you know how to use it, right?" And they're like, "Yeah, <laughs> we, we totally." <laughs> What are you doing over there, slug? <laughs> slug, you know. Stephen Russell silently slides a can of, be- can of beans back into his bag. Yeah. Nothing. I, I thought just listening intently. I thought I was supposed to bake beans here. No, not again. <laughs> um. <laughs> so yeah, it's nineteen. So this is we we basically we went back in time a bit because this is nineteen sixty one again. Um, nineteen sixty three mm-hmm. is when Ben Gurdy quit. Um, okay. so nineteen sixty one and. Slug also get, gets access to the PDP-1, and he spends all of his time to create a game. Okay. He does not decide to put out useful software. He decides to make a game, and he does it for, okay. he does it for six months. And the game that he creates, it basically makes use of the display, and mm-hmm. it involves two spaceships that you can fly. Um, like It's a two-player game, and they fly around, and they can shoot torpedoes at each other. If you hit the other spaceship, it, it's dead, and the other person won. And so he created this game and he showed it to his friends. And after Slug's friends see the first version, they get really into it. And they start wasting all of their PDP one time that they get <laughs> that they get by this professor on make, improving this game instead of creating anything, any other software. And they they also start improving on it. So I have a question. Yeah. Am I correct in saying this is the first video game? Um it to actually say what the first video game is is rather difficult. It is definitely one of the first video games. Yeah, because I had heard that the first one was actually produced on like a radar screen. Yeah, um, the PDP-1 display looks like a radar screen. Okay, then that would make sense. But the, okay, the, so at I at wanna... the same time, there was a game produced called Tennis with Friends in 1962 or 1961, and that is on an mm-hmm. oscilloscope. So... The reason I ask is because I may or may not have like 10 sources open on my computer right now about the first video game with quotes, because I was going to do this episode and I'm really glad I didn't. <laughs> nice. Um, there, there is a few other games that might be considered yeah. the first game. There is that other game that you could do that is called Tennis with Friends that is worth played on an os- oscilloscope, but this one is um, it's not that. And so, no, I actually, this is fine. I'm, I'm ha- absolutely happy that this occurred. All is good. So, so they start improving yeah, yeah. on this game, 
but I, I think I, I would just read an excerpt from a short article in the MIT's internal PDP-1. Like they had, a ma- they had a magazine, an internal magazine that was only about the PDP-1 because that was a huge mm-hmm. deal that they had this machine. It was called the De- Decoscope or Decuscope, something like that. If, when walking down the halls of MIT, you should happen to hear strange cries of, no, no, turn, fire, ooh, do not be alarmed. (laughs) Another Western is not being filmed. MIT students and others are merely participating in a new sport, space war, planned and programmed by Stephen R. Russell under the auspices of the Hingham Institute Study Group on Space Warfare. That's how they call their production company. They called it Hingham Institute Study Group on Space Warfare. It's amazing. Space War. Wow. <laughs> Space War is an exciting game for two players, many kibitzes, and PDP-1. The game starts with each player in control of a spaceship displayed on a PDP scope face, equipped with a propulsion rockets, rotation gyros, and space torpedoes. The use of switches to control apparent motion of displayed objects imply demonstrates the real-time capabilities of the PDP-1. Also displayed on the scope is a central sun with ex- which exerts gravitational influence on the spaceships. This is something that his friends put in. Steve Russell didn't put this in. His friends came in and said, like, why is there a sun in the middle? And it would actually pull the ships into the middle and you could make use of it to kind of huh. slingshot yourself around and kind of do maneuvers. That's really cool. The entire battle is conducted against a slowly moving background of stars of the equatorial sky. The object of the game is to destroy the opponent's ship with torpedoes. The computer follows the targets and participants have an opportunity opportunity to develop tactics which would be employed in any future warfare in space at any given time they pretended that this was an actual game to train for space warfare yes truly (laughs) when when someday when we're having you know our space war with the galactic conclave or whatever they'll look back to this study group and say, this is where it all began. Your editor visited the MIT computer in room 26265 and can verify an excellent performance. She learned that the best aces had only a 50% chance of survival. So it was only, if you, there was a, it was just a thing of chance if you won or didn't. And, yeah, it's literally a coin flip. Enthusiasm nevertheless ran high and the battle continued while young Mr. Russell tried to explain his program. The most important feature of the program, he said, is that one can simulate a reasonably complicated physical system and actually see what is going on. Mr. Russell also said that the symbolic and binary tapes were available. Please contact Mr. Russell for additional information. So he was able, like they spread out the program. They gave the tapes out to other people so they could install it on their machines. That's really cool. And one thing is that, maybe let's first read a quote by another person that's called Albert Kuhlfeld. And he wrote for the Analog magazine in 1971. The first few years of space war at MIT were the best. The game was in a rough state. Students were working their hearts out, improving it, and the faculty was nodding benignly as they watched. The students learning computer theory faster and more painlessly than they'd ever seen before. And a background of real-time interactive programming was being built up that anybody in the school could draw on. One of the largest problems in the development of the game was having how to talk to a computer program and have it han- and have it answer back. So th- what he's saying is that all of a sudden, like these professors that told them, make a software and 
all of a sudden all these students swarm into these rooms and start to make this game but to make a game you don't just you don't just write what you see on the surface right a game involves all kinds of functions and programs that run in the background so all, right. all of a sudden they put in all of their time more time to create concepts that haven't been created before for a machine that is completely newly built and all the professors are like these kids are learning faster than in any of my boring lectures ever before. And so they just let it go. But also while this was happening, they created all kinds of software that could be used in other applications. Mm -hmm. So the, and the thing about Space War, the game is, it started spreading all over the country. Like weeks after Slug showed it to people for the first time, each university would have their own version. Like in Minnesota, they'd play something called Minnesota Hyperspace. Um, because they had a, they had like a different mechanic where you uh -huh. could turn invisible, you could go into hyperspace, um, and you would only be visible by your rocket flame if you were if you were accelerating, which kind of put a, put a different twist on the game. And others like other universities included scoring systems or space mines that you had to kind of flow ar fly around or partial damage, so you would have to be hit twice. Stuff like that. Like it was a modding community, but um, it took place in tiny study rooms in in universities all over the country. Man, if you guys could just see my face right now, I'm just like all smiles, imagining all of these nerdy college students losing their shit at the prospect of a video game. Right? Like it was the birth like, of the gaming nerd. Yeah, yeah, right. Like to and and to have the. And they're learning along the way, right? So not only is it the birth of the gaming nerd, it's the birth of video games, but it's also the birth of games as a teaching tool. Yes, and that computer science, but especially not computer science, but that software design is mm -hmm. intertwined with the creation of games. Yeah. The thing about Space War is that it wasn't just a game for, for uh, as a game's sake. It, it was never sold, but... Like never sold, like the version that was spread like that was never sold. But yeah. one thing that happened is that they used it to visualize the power of the PDP-1 because they could show people, like, look at this game. This game requires thousands of operations per second. This game ran at 60 FPS, right? It was yeah, yeah, it was completely fluent. and That's crazy. And and they would could show like look at how smooth this game runs. There's billions of torpedoes on the screen. There's little stars flowing by. There's the sun in the middle. There's like all this gravitational pull being calculated. This machine can do this reliably for long periods of times. Because what were people even people that knew computers knew that being able to use a computer longer than six hours usually didn't work because like a vacuum tube would break or maybe the mm -hmm. transistors weren't, weren't reliable enough or something like that. But the PDP-1, like they could show off the reliability and the power of the machine. So I have two sources that claim that Space War was one of the biggest selling factors of the PDP-1. How cool. And yeah, and it also gave birth to basically the first video game genre, as you would say, because there is one, two games, as we said, there's um, Tennis with Friends, which was kind of a Pong-esque game that appeared before Pong. And there is um, there was a tic-tac-toe game on the Iduvac 
which was a supercomputer in Britain in the 50s. But tic-tac-toe isn't kind of isn't really an original idea. It's just like like if you if you program tic-tac-toe on a machine that costs you 10 million dollars to build, that's just really ineffective tic-tac-toe, you know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and then well, I mean it's still like hey, look what we can make this machine do. Yeah, I, so, but you, you, you could basically consider this tic-tac-toe game probably the first game. It was called OXO. But people say that Space War probably is the, the, the real spirit, the, the truly first game that was ever created, especially because of the community aspect of it. That is really cool. Yeah. I do really love this entire story because I think this can be projected onto, onto something deeper than, than onto what it seems from the surface. This is again, it, it's kind of a beautiful depiction of the of the human condition. Like there's these these naked monkeys on the shoulders of giants, and we have split the atom, and and we're huddling in these tiny chambers around shiny boxes, picking each other's minds like lice stuck in the fur of our friends. And it's and it's a mad world, and we make it madder every day. Because we just can't help it. and But as long as we kind of have each other, we'll be fine. And at the end of all of this, when I was did the research, I was like, I hope that kind of, I hope Benjamin Gurley's kids were okay. And I hope they had each other. Like all these students had each other in this huge community project that kind of made their life better and that they yeah. could lean on each other. And because kind of in the end, we don't really have another choice than sticking together and helping each other out. And like, even if the torpedo volleys, volleys you right into the sun, you just got to fire the thruster and keep on going. And kind of thankful you listened to my story, Tyler. And I'm glad to have you. I appreciate you. And I appreciate, I appreciate you, my friend. I appreciate all of you other guys, too. Yeah. I um, So to, to tie into that story I was talking about earlier. Um, so uh, Andrea and I have been doing this thing lately. Someone posted this little app they made on Reddit. And... Um, it's basically like a like a deck of cards that you can sit across the table from someone and like ask them like random questions and it'll be like tell you know let's talk about the first time we met or like what's something cool you learned from me that's cool and we were having one of them was a discussion of like what are things that changed your life and one of them for me was starting streaming on Twitch as dumb as that is because like i i love i've always loved video games but what I really love about video games is being able to talk to other people about them. And so like we're all playing Death Stranding right now. And that's just so exciting to me to be able to be like, did you find that thing? Did you did you go to that place? And none of us are looking at any guides, right? So when Jay tells me, hey, there's a hidden microchip that's over by the wind farm, but you got to walk around the back. Like that's fucking so cool to me, right? Yeah. And so like, Anyway, my point is, it's just like, I'm, I'm glad I have all of you yeah. and I'm glad that you and I became friends because I just randomly just decided to raid somebody one day who was playing Dead Cells. You know, here we are recording a podcast to all seven of you who listen. <laughs> so <laughs> so uh, to those seven of you, I don't know, I'm, make, I'm making shit up. Thanks. It's, it really means a lot that you are here and willing to listen to us ramble about whatever this is we do. Yeah. So. And I would like to say thank you for to to all the people that support the stream directly, which would be Quad Laser that made the music for it, and Delco that helps mm -hmm. us put it up online. And yeah. I would also like to wish all of you um, happy holidays and a Merry Christmas if you choose to have it. Yeah. 
Uh, thanks, Docs. This episode was a Christmas miracle. <laughs> da, da, da. Yeah, let's hope little Timmy doesn't die of leukemia tomorrow. <laughs> well, in the United States, he probably will. Yeah. But I digress. Uh, thanks, everybody. You're all <laughs> rad. Stay safe. Wear your fucking face masks. Oh, my God. How hard is it? Wear your fucking mask. Yeah, and also get your anyway. vaccine once it's out there. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If your country decided to buy enough for its population. Uh, but don't use the spirit of giving to give other people coronavirus. But anyway, thanks again. You're all rad. This has been Codex Rex, the video game history podcast. I'm Tyler. I am Dux, and we wish you a good day. Bye.